0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Standing God's Righteousness, episode number 53. There wasn't actually... And episode 52 so in effect this is episode 52 um, but from now on we will continue from this point onwards sometimes our faith trials are for the edge of education benefit of others and not for ourselves like the man born blind for example that Jesus healed witnessing that intentionally hidden glory of God can be a powerful faith booster we can mentally prepare ourselves for possible trials in the future by experiencing them through mental exercises.
1: We have been considering the principle of faith, and particularly the issue of the trials we face in relation to our faith. Here are some of the issues that we have determined. Um, Like every other divine principle, there are two aspects to the principle of faith. There is the doctrinal category of faith, in how Paul defines the time-limited application of the Holy Spirit gifts to the Ephesians in the context of, quote, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, mature, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, end quote. This is our understanding of the terms of our Creator's righteousness, His rightness, what we call the truth, The second aspect of faith is, of course, the level of confidence we continue to develop in that truth. The second issue we need to understand about faith is that it is variable. It is not simply that we have faith or we do not have faith. That would be a contradiction of a common phrase our Messiah used during his ministry concerning the enlightened community, O ye of little faith and also how the centurion at Capernaum had demonstrated a greater faith than anyone in Israel that Jesus had previously encountered. This variable faith, nature of faith, is the basis for the next faith rule, that faith needs to be developed. A faith that is not developing is definitely decaying. The law of exponential decay is an inescapable constant, In our current sin-cursed environment we've noted four avenues for improving faith first that there is the faith validating experiences that can be both community-wide and very individual and personal secondly the fiery trials that we experience but of course a controlled fire not an uncontrolled conflagration thirdly we can be proactive Uh, to increase our faith, according to Jesus, through prayer and fasting. Fourthly, um, we can increase our faith by witnessing the hidden glory of God that's only visible, only visible to individuals who pursue it earnestly. We have noted how this understanding of having to develop our faith to increase that quality factor that God wants. That necessary growth factor is emphasized within the creational testimony of the agricultural process and perfectly validates the counterintuitive and obviously uncomfortable foundational divine standard of demanding quality more than quantity in the development of the saints extending from being escorted out of Eden all the way to the third immortalization in the Creator's plan. That quality standard was the basis by which Jesus became our savior. We don't have the freedom to presume. We don't have to pursue quality, despite the availability for grace and forgiveness. There was an absolute rule for each of the three divinely appointed harvest feasts in the first kingdom age. Those three harvest feasts are crisp shadow projections of the three divine harvests in the plan of God, those three immortalizations in the Creator's plan. That foundational rule was that no one was allowed to participate in any of those harvest feasts unless they had something to offer God. In Deuteronomy 6, we see one of those um, uh, laws stated, it says three times in a year shall all your males appear before the lord your god in the place which he shall choose in the feast of unleavened bread and in the feast of weeks and in the feast of tabernacles and they shall not appear before the lord empty every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the lord thy god which he has given you we have to bear fruit not miserable fruit like the vineyard Isaiah describes in chapter five, not the rotted basket of figs that Jeremiah parallels uh, to everyone left in Jerusalem after that first deportation to Babylon, not the inedible figs on the fig tree that Jesus cursed a few days before his death, not the fruit bearing plant life that shrivels in the sun due to having no depth, and not the weed and thorn choked plants consumed by the cares of this world. We have to develop that quality of faith, because faith is variable. And Jesus was very disappointed in what he called little faith in the enlightened community during his ministry. This fruitfulness is the creational testimony about the personal righteousness we are expected to provide, which is our understanding, our pursuit and our demonstrations of God's righteousness in our own personal lives, that quality goal of our Creator. This is one of the features of faith we absolutely have to understand. We should recognize that God provides faith validations for our encouragement and confidence. Historically, this has been both community-wide and personal. Another feature of faith is that we have to recognize God will impose trials in our life. Not all trials we face will be generated by God, but some will. The creational testimony validating this understanding is the difference between a controlled fire, which is valuable, uh, which is a harnessed fire, and of course an uncontrolled fire, which only destroys. A comforting rule about all trials that we will face is that God promises to offer an escape route for our trials, that we will not be tempted beyond our capacity. But that doesn't mean we're not going to fail. Just because we have an escape option from a trial or temptation does not ensure we will always have the wisdom or the spiritual strength to take advantage of that opportunity. Another rule that can be both comforting and somewhat disturbing is that judgment itself will be variable. That after all our trials and faith development, we will not all be judged on the same basis. We are both comforted and warned that much will be required of those who are given much. Not everyone will be tried to the same extent. More will be required of some than others. But obsessing about a perspective failure is balanced in how our judge promises mercy and grace. We just can't take that for granted, as that changes a forgivable failure into a presumptuous sin, which is unforgivable. There's another feature about the trials of our faith that we should also consider. This is how our trials can sometimes be experienced as much or more for the benefit of others than for ourselves. There are experiences we may suffer with that that, uh, prompt those why questions. What purpose does this suffering provide? This can be a very unhealthy thought process from a spiritual perspective. Let's consider the lesson of the man born blind, that Jesus once again healed on a Sabbath day. We read in John 9, and Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. This man had suffered with blindness all his life. Jesus makes it clear this blindness suffering was not because of any sin of the man's parents, and certainly not due to some future sin that the blind man might commit after his blind birth, which is yet another ungodly understanding that we can actually be judged uh, for, for sins that we might commit someday. This blind man did not even ask Jesus to heal him. No request was made. Jesus explains the foundational purpose for this fully grown man suffering of blindness from birth was qualified to serve as a platform for manifesting the working of God in him. Let's not presume this is some sort of exclusive application that might never happen again, not in our lives. It's interesting that Jesus does not simply heal this man. He actually puts a a mud paste formed from his own spit over the man's eyes and directs him to somehow find his way to the pool of Siloam to wash off his now muddy eyes. Jesus apparently does not offer to have a disciple kindly escort this poor blind man to the pool and does not direct him to whatever the nearest water source may be for cleaning that spit mud from his face. He would have to stumble his way to this particular pool of water on this Sabbath day, which as we know he did and he was blessed with the capacity to see the first time as an entire life. Then comes the manifesting of the works of God. It's absolutely fascinating to see how some of the Pharisees defend an impossible frame of reference. It's insisted this Jesus couldn't possibly be approved of God as he had healed on a Sabbath day, which is something they presumed, they were totally confident, was forbidden by God. they never recognized the spiritual substance casting the the Sabbath ritual shadow. That a rest from the physical effects of sin would be an absolutely perfect fulfillment of the purpose of Sabbath observance. They refused to believe that they and their teachers in the truth and their teachers, the teachers of the teachers in the truth, could possibly have been wrong. The same frame of reference is what prompted that ridiculous claim of Jesus getting his power to heal from Beelzebub, the pagan god of disease. Now, let's not presume this experience with this man suffering all his life in order to be a manifestation of the works of God is somehow unique to just him. Let's also not presume that the incredible level of foolish denial. Of some of these Pharisees is somehow unique in the enlightened community. That this sort of insistent denial of an obvious truth could not possibly be experienced in our community today. As Paul exhorted the brothers and sisters at Rome, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Sometimes our suffering of trials, and the suffering of others is simply for the educational benefit of others that are not experiencing that suffering, that trial. I know I personally have been inspired by the suffering of others. When I was 20 years old, I participated in the second Operation Onesimus before there was a Domestic Truth Corps that was sponsored um, by the our Amended Fellowship. I was with three others in a hospital in Hamilton, Canada, uh, visiting an older brother who had been hit with a car two weeks earlier. One of those with us was his own 15-year-old granddaughter. And this brother in the truth asked me three times if his own granddaughter was my wife. She kept explaining who she was and that he lived with her family. His mind was scrambled. But then he began to tell us about the promised return of Jesus Christ. He explained it flawlessly, and he quoted Scripture perfectly. I was absolutely stunned. Ever since then, I've always wanted to develop a mind that could never shut off my appreciation and understanding of God's Word, by developing a faith that would be so powerful in me that a confused mind could not overcome its power within me. That brother's suffering has inspired me powerfully for 49 years. Another experience that summer was in Rockford, Illinois. A young sister with a brother, husband, and two young children had contracted multiple sclerosis and was at a stage when she was confined to a wheelchair and supposedly, or as it was reported, did not have a long life expectancy. After our team left that area, we heard Um, an anecdotal testimony that this sister's older sister, not a Christadelphian, had met with the ecclesial arranging brethren and, as it was told to us, begged them with tears to give her what her sister had. This young sister's cheerfulness and quiet faith and confidence that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, had inspired others, but particularly her older sister, who had to know what powered that positive confidence without complaining or questioning why. These are two inspiring experiences in my life that have never stopped providing fuel for my faith. Like the man born blind, sometimes our trials and the trials of others are simply for the educational benefit of others. Experiencing a family member slowly descending into the abyss of dementia is a very difficult experience. That why question, that frustrated, what's the purpose question can often surface. My answer has always been the same. The purpose is not in the spiritual education of the family member suffering this steadily debilitating disease with its mental and physical decay The potential spiritual education value is centered in the caregivers. That's the purpose. Like the man born blind serving as a platform for God's works to be witnessed by others. So one of the divine rules of trials is that they may be suffered for the benefit of others. We may not be able to define a purpose in our trials for ourselves. That doesn't mean there is no value. This was the understanding the Apostle Paul had to learn. Paul explains how he suffered with some sort of physical impediment that was very inconvenient to the effectiveness of his preaching activities. He called this physical impediment a messenger from Satan, but recognized it as a humbling balancing force to discourage a natural arrogance that could have developed from the abundance of glorious revelations that Paul had been given. Paul was one of those three apostles that were recorded in Scripture as having the capacity to award the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit to others by the touch of his hands. Peter and John had this capacity as well. Others may possibly have, but I'm not aware of anywhere this is mentioned. But Paul certainly had that capacity. However, ordinarily, there was an individual category of miracle Um, uh, like a one individual category miracle that was given um, a person to the capacity to manifest, such as prophecy, but not other miracles, or language communication, or healing. Paul had even been stoned to either death, or at least what appeared to be death, but recovered almost immediately. He had been bitten by a poisonous snake without any effects. Paul had healed others, but could not heal himself. And he asked Jesus three times, To be healed of this physical handicap, Jesus finally responded with a no. It seems preaching effectiveness was not as great a divine goal as Paul expected. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, where Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of my revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What I really love about the Apostle Paul was his capacity to learn and adapt very quickly. When he learned the truth of a matter, he did this on the road to Damascus so many other Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus was certainly one of those Pharisees, um, and also the scribes and the Sadducees, they did not have the capacity that, as Paul did, they they obstinately clung to their illegitimate understandings, even in the face of miraculous proof that they and their teachers in the enlightened community had been wrong, such as the issue of, of healing on the Sabbath. Paul's response to this lesson, that he would continue to suffer with this preaching impediment, this physical handicap, so that he could have the opportunity to demonstrate the strength of God and of Christ through his weaknesses, that that response was joy. Uh, We read verse nine in the same chapter, Most gladly therefore will I, rather glory, in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. This attitude is exactly the opposite frame of reference to what society teaches us today. We are taught to whine and complain and object, to demand our rights, and to protest with clenched fist, bended knee, to band together with other complainers, to form unions and lobbying groups and protest groups and foundations in order to demand our frame of reference must be imposed on others. Sometimes we're gonna face trials in our life that may not offer any kind of obvious, comforting educational intention. Sometimes our suffering or difficulties will simply be for the benefit of others or simply for the glory of god shouldn't that be enough a prayer i've heard a number of times during my my years in the truth is that god will use us that it's asked that god will use us in any way he chooses so that his will may be done that god may be glorified and that our faithful service may offer value in this expression We accept whatever difficult conditions may be imposed on us during the time of our service to God. God certainly doesn't need our permission, but I think this attitude is somewhat like one of the sacrificial offerings in that first kingdom age. To offer our lives to be used in whatever way our God and our high priest determines to be valuable to them. Peter expresses this same understanding as Paul in his first letter. In uh, chapter 4, Peter writes, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. I would also suggest that we can be proactive in our anticipated experience of trials, whether from God or not. One of those proactive avenues is that goal of growing our faith. We noted those four avenues of faith development, and two of those are voluntary. These are prayer and fasting, and also witnessing the hidden glory of God that's only visible to those within the enlightened community. We've certainly spent some time considering that prayer and fasting avenue of faith development that Jesus recommends. But this other issue of witnessing the intentionally hidden glory of God is another matter. We we certainly aren't going to get visions of the third heaven or hear what the seven thunders testify about when when time will no longer exist and the Red Sea isn't going to part for us and a fleece isn't going to be dry one day and damp with dew the next. We're still in the period of God's self-imposed silence. Just before that silence ends, there will be one last trial for all of us, that forever life or forever death trial at Christ's judgment seat. There will be no time for improvement or repentance at that time. In order to be among the few chosen from among the many required to attend the judgment, we need to be proactive about increasing our faith. We do have the capacity to witness that hidden glory of God uh, that's going to be revealed in the next age as the waters cover the sea, which is unlike the unenlightened community and unlike those within the enlightened community who don't care to search for that hidden glory. There is a visible glory that can be experienced and appreciated when we not only understand the truths about the terms of God's righteousness, but when we can personally address the challenges to that righteousness, when we can confidently prove that divine rightness with our Bibles and our training in various scientific disciplines, there is a glory that can be experienced, not just a greater confidence in the things that we know to be true, that are opposed by the sons of men and all their religious self-delusions and are increasingly being opposed within our own enlightened community. If and when we become proficient at what Peter defines as being ready to give an answer to every man that asks the reason for uh, for our hope and our understandings, Uh, that proficiency with the two witnesses of God, scripture and creation, this is going to reveal a hidden glory that can be quite considerable and can be very influential in our lives, particularly in times of stress and trial. But this potential glory exposure is intentionally hidden by God. The first step in pursuing the value of experiencing that glory that's hidden from most As to recognize that foundational lesson of God's policy of communicating exclusively through layers of intentional complexity. Sadly, even most Christadelphians presume that God communicates in very simple terms, that the gospel is very easy to understand, that simplicity perspective will always blacken that possible glory that can be inspiring and faith confirming. Fulfilled prophecy has this capacity of revealing a small measure of that inspiring glory, seeing the hand of God orchestrating events that were presented in scripture long before those events unfolded. But there's always more to see than is first evident when our frame of reference is limited to that simplicity presumption. But an interesting effect That accompanies this access to hidden divine glory is the difficulty in sharing that experience. We've had the opportunity to consider a small amount of some of the scriptural patterns that parallel creational patterns such as numerical patterns, uh, physics laws, chemical and atomic composition, um, mathematical patterns. In these uh, classes, over the last year. It takes a fair amount of time to justify these patterns that are bound by by numbers and components and ritual observations and chemical compositions and laws of creation, or laws of nature as most people would refer to them. Witnessing these patterns and truly appreciating them is almost always dependent on first correctly understanding certain features of our creator's rightness, his eternal truths. There are layers and layers to some of these patterns, and there seems to be no discernible limit, no depth we could possibly plumb to the end. But one has to spend the time to even begin to see these hidden patterns and progressions and, and scripture to creation parallels. That's the barrier to the access to this glory. And that is the challenge within our current last generation of the ecclesial age. Our entire society is addicted to speed, simplicity, shortcuts, crowd chanting, uh, instant gratification. This is the age of acronyms and mission statements an advertising that frequently offers a fraction of a second to any particular image. The intention is to encourage an instinctive response, not a reasoned response, a heart response, not a mind response. And the advice is, don't think about it, just do it. That frame of reference, that thought process, results in eternal death. If we embrace this common philosophy, we may be successful within the operating structure of the societies of the sons of men with the resulting economic and social advantages, but that hidden glory of God that will soon begin to cover the earth will not be witnessed. That glory cannot be discovered quickly or easily or without a great deal of thought and energy. The advice then is to search for that divine glory that's hidden within the two avenues of divine communication, the written word of God and the spoken word of God. The inspirational effect can be very significant, particularly in situations when our faith will be tested when experiencing trials that may not be God-directed. I do have another recommendation for being proactive in dealing with faith trials, whether they are imposed by God and Christ or not. This is a mental exercise. Uh, This requires some concentration and I think some mental conditioning, at least it was in my own experience. You can call it uh, meditation. (laughs) You might want to call it daydreaming, but I really don't think that would be a particularly good description. Personally, I impose on my mind an environment that may be very uncomfortable. What I'm trying to do is to see how I emotionally and verbally react to specific challenging situations. I play them out in my mind with the express purpose of understanding how I would react in that situation. I literally have conversations in my mind, playing every part. My intention is to understand what challenges may be too difficult to me, and could I deal with them? And how could I overcome specific challenges in certain situations? I have questioned myself about how I would react in very difficult situations, such as perhaps the sudden death of my wife. Could my faith survive? I think in great detail about attending her funeral, listening to the words of the one leading the service, recounting her life, see her be- being lowered into the gra- a grave, and feeling those horrible emotions and asking myself how, Would I respond? Could I survive spiritually? Would my faith fail? I'll even force myself to experience the same challenge in my mind over and over until I can deal with the issue successfully, until I know for certain this challenge will not overcome my faith. This process is a procedure for how therapists Help people deal with their fears. You know there's a name for every kind of fear you can possibly imagine? A fear of being alone, autophobia. A fear of crowds, anaclophobia. A fear of darkness, nyctophobia. There's even a fear of religion and interestingly the medical name is ecclesiophobia. (laughs) There's these in a fear of long words which which we have on the screen which is an extremely long word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. I think the potential advantage in this kind of mental exercise is demonstrated in how Jesus knew in advance the nature and progression of events that would end with his crucifixion. He was mentally prepared. He knew in advance about the betrayal of Judas he knew about his arrest in Gethsemane. He knew of the conspiracy by the leaders of the enlightened community against him. He knew how he, he would be whipped, whipped, tortured, humiliated, and crucified. He wasn't taken by surprise. Now that doesn't mean this was, this was not difficult for him. He prayed those three times in the garden that perhaps that cup could pass from him but that he would submit himself to the Father's will. The intensity of those prayers is referenced in how Jesus is described as being very sorrowful. Luke describes his mental state as agony, with extreme sweating, despite the probable coolness of the night. But because Jesus knew what was going to happen did not mean it wasn't still going to be extremely difficult. I think that mental preparedness was a significant advantage, particularly in the course of his silence in the face of his accusers and the Roman soldiers abusing him and his six hours dying on that wooden cross. How many times had Jesus silenced those attempting to trip him up with their questions and accusations? But this time he was silent. And this undoubtedly and pretty obviously unnerved his accusers these leaders of god's chosen people a frustrated caiaphas finally yelled out that that commanded question i adjure you by the living god that you tell us whether you be the christ the son of god and so the silence of jesus had to end and he not only admitted to being the son of god he added the understanding that these men personally would witness his vindication. Jesus says, you have said, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. These enlightened rejectors will be required to be present when Christ is glorified in the saints represented in Christ's response as the clouds of heaven. This is one of several references demonstrating that Brother J.J. Andrews was wrong to insist that only the baptized can possibly be raised for judgment. It also serves to emphasize that Christ's judgment is not primarily about whether or not we will be chosen to inherit eternal life or eternal death. It is primarily about the vindication of God's righteousness, a privilege that has been extended to God's Son. The only reason those men will be required to attend the judgment, despite being dead for almost 2,000 years, will be for the vindication of Jesus Christ. They will have to see his glory and realize the incredibly foolish mistake that they made. Another example of the advantage of being mentally prepared for challenges to our faith was how the Apostle Paul knew in advance he was going to be arrested and bound when he went to Jerusalem that last time. Agabus had prophesied how Paul would be bound by the Jews at Jerusalem, and the brothers and sisters urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul's response was, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew what was going to happen, but he was mentally prepared for that arrest. He accepted it. We don't have prophets to warn us. We don't get visions. Angels don't encourage us. But I do think that mental preparedness can be very helpful so i've made a practice of mentally experiencing possible difficult challenges to my faith quite a number of them that i could that i might experience at some point in the future however personally i don't attempt to impose my own sense and my own success in that mental procedure part of the mental exercise is to see how i react and what i might be afraid of or shrink back from, or be repulsed by. Orchestrating a manufactured success in these mental exercises has never been my intention. That's like the simulated uh, self-hypnosis procedure that has been promoted by success advocates like Napoleon Hill with his famous book, Think and Grow Rich, and the Dale Carnegie courses on the secrets of success. These were all about positive affirmation and in my opinion, simply tricking your brain into supposedly becoming successful. So there are a number of ways that our faith can be developed. We do have to remember those faith-validating experiences that can be both community-wide and very, very personal. Greater depth and conviction can result from those fiery trials, those harnessed fire applications that temper And purify and protect us from those uncontrolled conflagrations of life. But we can also be proactive with prayer and fasting, and by diligently searching to witness the glory of God that he intentionally hides, but provides the exclusive potential exposure to a measure of that glory to those who diligently seek for it. The fifth avenue is to mentally prepare ourselves for potential challenges that we may face by experiencing them in our minds to that point of success, of overcoming uh, possibly anticipated trials. But the most significant understanding we need to develop, to to adopt, is that recognition that we actually need to grow our faith. We have been warned in Hebrews 10, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Well, our next class is going to begin to address the issue of thanksgiving and praise that are directly associated uh, throughout Scripture. I had originally intended to move on to the principle of thankfulness with this class, but I realized we had not directly addressed a very significant issue concerning faith, which is the trials of our faith. There are a number of rules found in scripture about these expected challenges to our faith. First,